first five books called the Torah or the Law in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you. And page 121, you can find Numbers 14. And once you find that in your Bibles, and we're not going to read it um, during the scripture reading, but we'll we'll refer to it 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is pretty close to the end of your Bible. If you're using the blue Bibles, page 996. So Numbers... We're going to read 13, part of chapter 13 and 14, and then I'll refer to 2 Timothy 4. You follow along as I read these passages. The people of God have come out of Egypt. Now they're on their way to the promised land. Chapter 13, verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, occupy the land that they had just spied out. For we are well able to to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report about the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw there that are in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to, our, to, to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we, as so we seem to them. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Chapter 14, verse 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me, says the Lord. Say to them, Moses, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And all of your number listed in the consensus from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones whom you said would become a prey I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years. And shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Turn back and let's just look at one verse. Verse 24. Caleb. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come together and around this 
word. May it be a fire in our souls that, that spreads out into our hearts, our minds, our ways, our thinking, our attitudes. May, may it come in and make the right adjustments to us today. May it come in and, and give us the right level of encouragement today. Would it come in and remind us of the truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last week we were looking at the story of Exodus, and this is where we're ending up here today. And the story of Exodus is like a chord. It's a chord that you hear at the very beginning of the Bible, and it plays over and over through the Bible. And whenever you hear a chord in the Bible that plays all the way through the Bible, it also plays out of the Bible into your life. And so the story, the Exodus story, everyone here is in the Exodus story. You might not be in the same place in the Exodus story, and you go through it a number of different times in your lifetime, but everyone here finds themselves in the Exodus story. And when we talked about this, we talked about sort of three phases of the story. There's more that could be said, but every sermon has three good points, so I just had to make it three phases. One is desire. Two is disorientation, and three is reorientation. And we talked about the first two last week, an awakened desire uh, and then a disorientation. I'll remind you of those, but we're going to spend more of our time today and even next week talking about reorientation. Now, again, these themes, they play through the Bible, and you could have a song for where you're located. And it's a psalm. You can find a psalm in one of these three phases. Let me just give you an example. If you're a place where you need your desire awakened, Psalm 63, in my distress I called to the Lord. I'm I'm enslaved. I'm I'm in some kind of stress and I need to call out to the Lord. And so you say, how how do I verbalize that? Well, you go to Psalm 62, you sing that song. And he answered me, it says, If you're in a time of disorientation, Psalm 88, lots of laments in the Bible, Psalm 88, listen, why, O Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? You have taken away my companions. Darkness is my closest friend. I hope none of you are in this place, but everyone will be in this place at some point. And you need a way to express that emotion. And so a psalm comes in because there's echoes of Exodus all the way through the Bible. And then in terms of reorientation, you go through this phase of disorientation. You're wondering which way you're going to go. Are you going to go towards God or are you going to go back to Egypt, which we'll talk about in a moment. And when you say, I'm going I'm to finally choose to go towards God, Psalm 73, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping. I was almost gone. I envied the proud when I saw them. They seemed to live such painless lives. I wonder if you've ever got disoriented by that. You look at your life and you're trying to be faithful, and then you look out at people who who seem to be wealthy and prosperous, but they don't follow the Lord, and you just get disoriented. See, you you take your eyes off the Lord and you put it on the world. And then the very end of the psalm, the reorientation For me, how good it is to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. 
You hear that? I was trying to squeeze into a worldly shelter. It seemed like, like Egypt, it was going to be good, but I, I looked and said, no, I can't, I can't stay here. I've got to get reoriented toward the Lord, so I, I'm making the Lord my shelter. So just in a way of quick review, this awakened desire, we saw it in Exodus chapter 1. The Israelites lived too long in the wrong place in Egypt. They'd been there for 400 years. They became enslaved. A desire wells up into, the, into their souls, and they cry out to the Lord saying, we, we can't stay here anymore. Exodus 2, they groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, and their cry came up to God, and God hear, heard their groaning. It's really not unlike the, the prodigal son, is it not? Remember that, Luke 15. The prodigal son goes away uh, to a far country, a foreign country, Egypt, and what happens? He, he squanders all of his wealth, and he ends up eating what pigs are eating. And I love the phrase, and then he came to his senses. I wonder if anybody's in this place. You're just coming to your senses like, this is crazy. I thought this way, this thinking, this action was going to be life-giving. This is crazy. I'm eating what pigs are eating. And what does he do? I've got to go back to my father. I've got to go cry out to my father. Same thing happening, this echo of Exodus. We see it all through the Bible. Then there's this disorientation. The, the Exodus story continues. Once you have this awakened desire, you cry out to God. He answers you. He brings you sort of through the Red Sea, through a baptism, onto the other side, and you're ready to, to go with God. And that's just the beginning of the story. And you're on your way to the promised land. And what we realized wasn't a newsflash, I'm sure, is that the way to the promised land is through the wilderness. Everyone who wants to get to the promised land has to go through the wilderness. There's not a shortcut. It's not like a little tunnel. You know, oh, I'm, I'm going to go around. I don't know if you're like one of these people like me. You go to the grocery store, you're just jockeying for which line is going to go the fastest, you know, and you try to look at it and say, okay, this one, and, and invariably it's like, you know, Need a check here on aisle four. And you're like, okay, I'm here forever. And, and, and you, can't, you can't navigate around the wilderness. You have to go through it. We called it the desert of disorientation. The desert of disorientation. Dan Allender, right, counselor, writes this. Our spiritual journey must lead through the desert. Our spiritual journey must lead through the desert. Or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence of the desert we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the desert we clearly see our attachment to trinkets. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves the body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. Now listen to his closing line. In the desert we trust God or die. In the desert you get to a point where you say, there's only two roads here. Now look, this is, a, this is a difficult fork in the road. Many of you have been to this fork in the road. And you just say, there, there's really just, I'm going to go back to Egypt and really just die in this world without the Lord, or 
I'm just going to sort of throw myself into the Lord, even though it doesn't seem to be making sense, and it is painful at this point. In the desert, we either trust God or die. You remember in uh, Numbers chapter 11, we read this last week, one of the places that the Israelites had to visit, it's a very long name for a town, and it, it's called Kibroth Hatava. And the meaning of the name was graves of craving. I loved that. The graves of craving. The road that we travel between our salvation to heaven is littered with graves of craving. You have these cravings, and you just have to say, that's not right. That's got to get buried. And that might be a relationship, it might be wealth, it might be anger, it might be understanding, it might be control, it might be comfort. There are all kinds of graves that mark our way home. And when you find your way, you put yourself in this desert of disorientation, the best I can say is that you have one of three ways to respond. We see it here in the text. First of all, you can go back to Egypt. You see that in verse 4 of chapter 14. It's just such a sad verse. And they said to one another, let's choose another leader. I mean, think of the things they have seen through Moses. They have been eyewitness accounts to the plagues and how God has saved them to walk across the Red Sea, to quail from water to the rock to manna. I mean, it was just one thing after another. I just think about the discouragement of this moment for Moses. Let's just choose somebody else. Choose somebody else to do what? Take us back to slavery. Somehow you thought the journey with Jesus would be different. You didn't anticipate the difficulty of the wilderness. Even though you weren't completely happy, enslaved, it did satisfy some physical needs maybe, and it seems more appealing than the desert, so you find another voice. You find a voice that will take you back. This is where I want to reference 2 Timothy chapter 4 because you see this echo of Exodus here. Paul is in a prison cell. He's in the prison cell he's going to die from. This is his very last letter to the person he's leaving in charge, his protege, Timothy. And he says this in this very last chapter of his last letter. I charge you in the presence of God, chapter 4, verse 1. Preach the word, verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For a time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away, turn away from listening to the truth and wander back to Egypt. See, there's going to be a time when you're going to say this whole Jesus thing, just the journey is too difficult. And I'm going to find another voice who will affirm the things that I really want that Christ is not allowing me to have. And so I'm going to find that voice, and that voice is going to take me back. It's happening in the New Testament. It's happening in the Old Testament. And one of the saddest examples of this is in the same chapter. Look with me in verse 9. 
do your best to come to me soon. This is Paul sort of screaming to Timothy, I'm, I'm, I'm dying, I need some help. Verse 10, for Demas, who was one of his closest companions, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone back to Egypt. Now it says Thessalonica here, but it's, I've gone back. I've, I, I, I have these cravings from the world that I never got buried and so I'm going back. I, I'm going back to Egypt. This happens all the time. It's very tempting. It's extremely powerful temptation just to say, I'm cashing in on that old life with Jesus, and I just want to go my way. And that can happen when you're 16. It can happen when you're 56. It can happen at any point. And sometimes it feels like you're very near that point, even though the people around you wouldn't know it. So I just wonder if there's anybody here living in the wilderness and battling the temptation to go back. What I can say is just, or exhort you, don't go back. Don't go back. Find people. Call me. I mean, just don't go back. It's slavery. So one option is when you're in this disoriented world, you can go back to Egypt. Another option equally as troubling as you can die in the desert grumbling. How about a life like that? You can just live your whole life grumbling. Now, don't, don't poke the person next to you here. But this is what happens, verse 27 through 33. You see that? God hears this grumbling, and he says, well, you're just going to die this grumbling person in the desert. You're going to live your whole life just grumbling. A couple of highlights here. Grumbling isn't a small sin. Just in case you missed it, although I doubt you did, verse 29, seems pretty clear what God's saying here. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. I mean, I don't think you need to know Hebrew to know what that means. I mean, you're not making it to the promised land. You're going to just die a grumpy old man, a complainer. It's not a small sin. One commentator says, Moses led the longest funeral march in history. Wow, what a leadership task. I've got to stay out here for 40 years while everybody who's 20 and older dies. Paul brings this up in 1 Corinth. Again, an echo of Exodus. Don't grumble as some of the Israelites did and they were destroyed. Don't, don't grumble. Just don't be a grumbler. Don't be a complainer. Paul Tripp says this, Grumbling isn't a small sin because it exposes a a belief taking root in your heart that you can get the job done better than God. See, when you're grumbling, it's like this isn't working out. And the the sort of subtitle is, If I were in charge, it would be working out better. That's basically what you're saying. Of course, you never say that out loud, but that's what he's saying. Is Paul saying that something's taken root in your mind and your soul that somehow you can get the job done better than God? I, I think I made this illustration or I used this illustration before. It's a true story. I was in a barbershop getting my hair cut, and the lady that did my hair moved to a salon. So for a little while, I had to go to a salon. No shame here. I'm just saying I did go to a salon for a little while was short-lived, but while I was in the salon getting my hair cut, uh, three or four chairs down was a, a lady, 
and a couple of other, you know, beauticians, and they're doing somebody's hair and chatting, and I'm, I'm really not trying to pay attention, but there's not a lot of chatter, so I'm, I'm able to hear, let's just say that, I'm able to hear the conversation, and they said, old Miss Johnson, I don't remember the lady's name, she, she passed away, you know, old Miss Johnson, she passed away, yeah, yeah, they, they called me to come do her hair at the funeral parlor. One last time for the open casket. And so somebody said, well, how was it doing the hair of a you know, dead lady? She said, at least she didn't complain. <laughs> and I thought, this is what these people think. Old Miss Johnson had come in, and every time she got her hair done, what they think about her is she complains. Don't, oh, don't be that person. At, beg somebody to tell you the truth. If I died, would people go, oh, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss some things, but the complaining, the grumbling, I'm just not going to miss that. Second sort of thing that we just want to highlight here about the grumbling is your grumbling causes your children to suffer, verse 33. You see that? Your children shall suffer for your unfaithfulness. That's, if you're a parent, that's, that's a heavy verse. The Lord is saying you're like a fountain and you're, you're, whatever's flowing out of you is flowing into your son or daughter. There, there's no way to stop that. It is actually happening. They're drinking this up for 18 or longer years. Don't, don't, don't flow out grumbling and complaining and make your children drink this bitter, bitter water. Finally, I just want to make note of there's a difference between complaining or grumbling and lament. I think it's helpful to sort of know the distinction. There's a book that I've uh, really enjoyed, and some of what I've said in the sermons have come from this. It's called Leaving Egypt by Chuck DeGroat. It's really a great book. And so I, I, learned, I listened to this guy speak for a week uh, on my soul care conference that I went to over my sabbatical. This is really an excellent book called Leaving Egypt. So it's all about this. And he's trying to explain the difference between complaining and lament, and he does it better than I could, so just listen. When the Israelites complained to God, their minds were made up. They were ready to return to Egypt to choose someone other than God. Instead of engaging God honestly with their suffering, they chose to turn their backs. It's this refusal to engage honestly in a relationship that angers God. You see that? I've just made my choice. I'm going back. I'm, I'm not willing to engage the Lord, period, or any longer. That's, that's the big problem. On the other hand, lament is a search for God. Lament enters the agony with the recognition that it might be days, months, even years. It enters the agony. And yet it carries the hope that God will eventually show up. This is a good summation. In our complaining, we give up on God. In our lament, we trust God with our deepest sufferings. See, complaining spirit is I'm giving up on God. A, a lamenting spirit is, is I'm, I'm entering into this agony and I'm trusting God is going to show up with my deepest sufferings and fears. This is where reading the Psalms is so helpful. All right, so you can go back to Egypt, you can stay and complain, 
or you can live faithfully. This is Caleb, chapter 14, verse 24. But before I get to this last point, I want to kind of pause here. And I want to ask this question and make one point. What exactly is causing the complaining by the Israelites? They have a bunch of different reasons to complain, but here they're complaining about something very specific. We saw it in Numbers 13. God has led them to a place where they have to face giants. That's why they're complaining. I mean, before it was food, and then it was water, and it was meat. They had different things that they complained about. But here, he's led us to a land which ultimately is a good land, but they have to face the giants. We're grasshoppers. They're giants. They have to plunge forward and trust God at this moment. And notice the false narrative. You see, we're not able to go up against these people. See, they're, they're building a case while they're right. They're bigger and stronger. We're giants. I mean, they're giants. We're grasshoppers. And I love this. If we go forward, we're going to get devoured. This thing that God wants me to plunge into, it's going to devour me. I can't go forward. I can't face that. So let me... Let me just say that the lie under all of this is you just can't trust God and he's not bigger than the giants that I face. So I want to go back. And I want to just ask gently and compassionately, has God led you to a place where right now you have to face a giant? A physical giant. Your health is deteriorating and the doctors can't change the direction. A relational giant. Maybe a trauma in your past giant. A grief giant, a shame giant, addiction giant, a fear giant, an anger giant, a pride giant. See, if you're facing that giant, God has intentionally led you here. To help you see he's bigger than that giant. This thing does not need to occupy your entire thinking, your entire life, the way you shape your life around this anger or this disappointment or this grief or this person that's dysfunctional. No, you've got to trust in God, but in order to trust, you've got to go forward. Can't go back. You can't go back. It's scary. Very moving, I think, and helpful poem by David White. It's called The Well of Grief. And you could insert whatever your giant is. The well of shame. The well of anger. The well of, and you, say, you could put your own giant in there. Here's what he says. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief. Turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe. We'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor finding in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface of the well of grief. You hear that? It's a still surface, and I don't want anything to disturb it. I don't want my anger to well up. I don't want to face that trauma. 
I don't want to give up on that thing. It feels like it's giving me life. I, I want it all to be still. And God's asking me to plunge in now, turning down through its black water to a place where you feel like, I can't breathe. This, this is a, a place that you're going to reach if you dive in, face a giant. You're going to feel like, I can't breathe. We'll never know the source from which we drink. And you'll find at the bottom of the well the little wishes you made hoping it would just go away. You ever done that? You see it and you wish it wasn't true. And you flip in a little coin. But you don't dive in. That's what David White is saying. This is what God is saying to the Israelites. You've got to dive in. You can't just flip a coin across the boundary and say, hey, can the giants go away? If I sleep on it, I mean, no, no, you've got to plunge in. You've got to plunge forward and face some kind of giant. And in that place, you're going to find down in that dark place, God is there. That's what you're going to find. You can trust him. Finally, let me just say on that, if you need some help, please let us know. It's a scary thing to dive into this well. Finally, our favorite character here is Caleb. Numbers 14, 24. Notice at the end of the verse, his descendants shall possess the land. You contrast that with the grumbling Israelites. The Israelites grumbled and their children drank this suffering. Caleb's faithfulness causes the children to prosper. What a legacy. Quickly, just notice this: the Lord's assessment. And may this be the assessment for each one of us. He's my servant. That's a great way to start. He just does what I say. This was the problem in Genesis chapter 3. They just don't do what I say. But Caleb's different. And what makes Caleb different is not some S on his you know, chest when he pulls open his shirt. No, he just does what God says. Whatever's written down in here, that's how I try to live my life. Not complicated, but hard. Secondly, he has a different spirit. The, the Hebrew word ruach, it's a fun thing to say. Ruach means breath. He has a different breath. Caleb breathes in a different kind of atmosphere. Something's flowing into every cell of his body that's different than everybody else. And I think that is the word of God because when Joshua and Caleb cross into the promised land, Joshua chapter 1, part of our Founder's Day sermon. Remember he says, be strong and courageous. Don't turn from my word to the right or to the left. Do everything written in it. It says, God's just saying, just keep to the word, keep to the word. Breathe in the word so that when you face your giants, you got the power of the word living and flowing through you. That's how you get a different spirit. That's how you reorient yourself when you're disoriented is through God's word. And finally, he followed me fully. Literally, he walked behind Yahweh. I was out at the beach with my grandson yesterday, and my, my son is taking my grandson on a little venture walk on the beach. And he's walking, and my grandson, he's trying to step in Dad's footprints, right? I mean, everybody's done this, have they not? That's the picture. I see God moving, 
I'm just, I mean, I, I need my head down and see where he's going. I don't have to hold, have a lot of vision out there. I just have to know what's the next footprint. And I'm just putting my foot into his footprint. He has moved, and I'm moving with him. Now, it's a cute image, but it's difficult. It's difficult to trust God. He moves in some places you don't want to move. Brennan Manning, the way of trust is a movement into obscurity. Into the undefined, not into some clear path for the future. The reality of, and I like this phrase, naked trust is the life of the pilgrim. They leave what's nailed down, they leave what's obvious and secure, and they walk into the unknown without any guarantee of the future. Why? Because God has signaled a movement, and he's offered himself to be there. That's enough. God has signaled a movement, and he's offered himself to be there. And here's my guess. For somebody here, God has signaled a movement. Hey, I need you to go this way right now. And you're going to have to leave some things behind. But I'm going to be with you, because so that's really all you need, right? God is signaling a movement for you to move, and you're standing there, and you're trying to decide, am I going to step into that footprint, or am I going to complain? Am I going to step into that footprint, or am I going to go back to Egypt? Everyone's going to be here at some point. Some people are here right now. God is signaling a movement. He's asking you to, to come with him. He's going to be there. He's never going to leave. He's never going to forsake. When you're disoriented, it's easy to say, you know what? The heck with it. I'm going back to Egypt. It's very easy, very powerful. Or you say, well, I'm going to stay in the church, but I'm going to complain the whole time. There are other churches other than Christ's community, if that's for you. I mean, there are really some wonderful churches I can point you to. But again, an easy thing to fall into. Harder. Scarier. Facing giants. But full of life is following the footprints of the Father. I'm going to take a moment just to listen to this song. It's an instrumental song. And I I love it. And sometimes I just listen to the, the, the theme It's called, I see the Lord. I see the Lord. And when I sit in my room and I think about seeing the Lord, I just say, God, that's, you're enough. All this other stuff that's entangling my soul, I want to let go of that. I want to see you. I want to have the courage to step into your, your footprint. He guides the people by a pillar of fire so let's sit quietly and see the Lord together